the secondary state is well developed. No memory for all that happened during it remains after the primary consciousness comes back. The subject during the secondary consciousness speaks, writes, or even acts as an animated by a foreign person, and often names this foreign person or gives his history. In old times, foreign control was usually a lover. Future Birds singing Under Your Spell, a song that was originally performed and written by the band Desire. This is Mortimer Page welcoming you to another edition of Booksmart. Thank you, Mortimer, and greetings, people. Good morning, Nigel. Hello, sir. Mr. Ross. Hey, Douglas. Hey, Nigel. Today's show will comprise of Nigel finishing up his pigeon series by reading a poem, and then Mr. Ross will read chapters 18 and 19, ending part two of his novel Hard Water, Alabaster Dreams. So let's make it happen. Nigel Lewis Stevenson, you're up. Lad. Thank you, sir. This is a poem by Nigel. It's the last in a series of poems dedicated to the Wild Bird Fund in New York City on 87th and Columbus, where I spent some time. Nora. And it says on the 3 by 5 attached to her crate that she is in need of socialization. 
I unhinge the carrier's steel door and reach in my gloved hand to extract the white ceramic dish. Nora ruffles her feathers and cortles loudly. I need to get her to leave the crate because her door has a green sticker on it and that means she is okay to fly around and join the flock, perched on the carefully wrapped heating pipes lining the sunken ceiling of the downstairs holding room. But Nora retreats quick to the back of her crate, which means I have to reach my blue hand in further in order to get her out. It means I have to clasp my hand around the back of her body so I can pin her wings to her side so she can't fluff herself up to repulse my shaking, grasping hand. The pecks of a pigeon, or shall I say the beak of a full-grown pigeon, is a knotty affair. It opens to an admirable distance, and the peck-pull twist of the clamped-down beak on my blue-gloved hand feels like the small pinch of an infant's sharp fingernails clinging to my skin. Nora cordles and pecks and pulls and twists and puffs up her wings at the alien blue-gloved hand. What am I to do but leave her alone with her crate door open? Socialization is a double-edged sword. I walk. Nora flies out of her crate on her own. I witness her sharply peck the neck of a gray dove crowding her space underneath the ceiling. Next, she flies back into her crate, but I shush her free without any altercation. I explained to Nora the cleaning was not complete and that she needed more time to fly free. When the time comes to gather the free-ranging birds, I have no luck. They flutter and fly beyond my hand's grasp. Kate, the rehabber, executes the foolproof solution, lights out. We quietly creep up on the cautious blind birds. Kate grabs two and I grab one, lights on. At first she was still, my clasping blue hands hold on. As we get closer to the open door of her clean crate, she begins to straggle with her feet and, un and unfold her wings. I am happy to deliver Nora back to her clean space. I tell Kate this bird is a scrappy one. Kate reads her card on the door and says, Oh, she's been here a few weeks. She'll be released soon. A week passes. I return to the wild bird fund. I wonder if Nora will still be there. I wonder if we'll ever meet again. Thank you, Nigel. Nigel Lewis Stevenson. Thank you, sir. Next up, Mr. Ross. Mr. Ross, what do you have to say about Nigel's poem, first of all? Well, I like Nigel's poetry, as I've said before, and I think with this poem, um, I really gathered in the affection that he felt for this bird, Nora. And uh, I think my favorite line, let's see if I can find it here. Oh, socialization is a double-edged sword. I love that line. Thank you, sir. Okay, Mr. Ross, anything to tell us about chapters 18 and 19? Well, we're still within the strange world of the mendicant muskrats for these next two chapters. And this will, as you said earlier, will end part two. Okay, whenever you're ready, Mr. Ross, yamma. Part two, Alabaster Dreams. Chapter 18 of the novel, Hardwater. Grand Poobah the 13th is not happy. 
He does not like it when sheep, any sheep, abandon their newly found fold. He calls to me, one of his aldermen. You there, what happened? How'd we lose those white sashers? Don't know, sir, don't. How many of them were there? Three, Grand Poobah. Did I singe any of them with my fireballs? Negative, Grand Poobah. Blast. My aim is off. Need to practice more. Maybe your arm needs a bit of a rehab, sir. Maybe so, maybe so. What irks me, what irks me is that usually, once we get them to don the sash, we don't lose them. Once they are bewitched with the beauty of the process, the process, gentlemen, the process. Once we get them to wet their toes into the process, however shallow that dipping, then we tend to keep them and reap them into the rotation. Red, blue, aquamarine, purple, etc. But these three, these three, it seemed we had them, didn't it, men? It does, it did. Seemed like they were part and parcel of the process. Got their toes wet, stepped into our moccasins, ready to walk a mile in them. They all seemed copacetic. So I'm wondering, as I'm sure you are, what exactly it was that made them retreat. No other word for it. Retreat. Turn tail. High tail it out of here with great and unruly determination. Maybe the whole shebang scared them. Shebang? Scared them? Yeah. The faces, the limbs, the fire, the flesh. Hmm. Hmm. You may have something there, something for me to ponder. If you would, please put it on the docket for our next meeting, heading to read, quote, Retreat of three white sashers from the welcoming ceremony, comma, why, question mark, quote, Do you want me to put a tail on them? Yes, yes, I most certainly do. We need, for the betterment of our organization as a whole, We need to find out why these men turned tail and floated off into the distance. If we are to keep doing this good work and continue to build our flock, well then, it stands to reason we need to find out, once and for all, why we've got some deserters. Yes, Grand Poobah, I myself will track them down post-haste. I thank you, and be it known to you, I have taken notice of your diligence. Let it be known I'll move you beyond clear glass once and if you track those troglodytes down and extract from them the reason for their retreat and bring them back to me. Understood? Yes, Grand Poobah, understood. Splendid. It heartens me to believe I've chosen, we've chosen the right man for the job. I will do my best, sir. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. It is just that, sir, outright disobeying can be so crippling. I understand, sir. Do you, do you, do you truly understand? I try to, sir. Do you, for instance, understand the extent of the pressure I'm under as Grand Poo 
I can only imagine, my liege. Ah, imagine, imagine, yes, imagine. The truth is, imagination is more important than knowledge. But, 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 it's the pressure that irks me, that impels me to maintain the sterling standards of the order as we stay true to our mission to rehabilitate suffering souls among us, to never turn anyone away. My God, man, such joy in this work when the magical transformation occurs. That's what makes me dance, my friend. The transformation, the shifting from semi-comatose to rosy red cheeks and shining eyes, the letting go of fears, quivering shakes, and replacing them with steady hands and steady gaze. That's when I dance the boogaloo. Right, sir. The Tarantella. Sir? End of chapter 18. Chapter 19. Look, I've tracked loads of stray interlopers before. These three misshapen men couldn't have gotten far. The Grand Poobah, the GP, and his management committee agreed to send me because I've got a hound's nose for tracking. I'm a human bloodhound, and it's true. I lift my nose up into the air and sniff. I get down on all fours and crane my nose to the ground and sniff. I corner my prey and flick on my Electrolux S80. The fat lady sings, and it's all over. In essence, my olfactory equipment is so fine-tuned I could find these three wayward cripples within hours. So I'm in a position to give myself a special dispensation to hit warm springs on my way. Because my body needs it, you know. My skin, my pelt, my carapace can use a sulfurous soaking in the powerfully pungent sulfur springs. So I ride on into warm springs and beeline to the Thomas Jefferson design octagonal barn that houses the roiling sulfur bath. The white-coated, white-bloused, white-slacked attendants greet me with the usual, the usual, the usual, Mr. Jones? Indeed. First a full-body massage, then an extended soak in the sulfur springs. My masseuse is a young goddess with coffee-colored eyes and coffee-colored skin and coffee-colored hair, and by God, she even smells of coffee. The aromatic oil she needs into my skin take their essence from lavender and coriander. She doesn't speak. Lay I there, allowing the crucial art of massage to unblock channels in my body's core and release debilitating toxins out into the ethers. As the delightful coffee and rose-hips-smelling masseuse continues to knead my body. A varied litany of moans, pops, and shifts in utter consciousness compels me to see 
in my mind's eye, certain shapes, stars, tears, fears, loves, losses, gains, and pains, a lingering taste of what life can yet give to me and what I can give to life at once consumes and enervates me. So what can I give to life? Peace? Love? Understanding? What's so funny about that? The angelic masseuse finishes and silently slips through a mysterious door into eternity, leaving me briefly alone with my thoughts as the gentle swinging of the wall clock's pendulum mesmerizes me anew. Ten minutes later, I am floating on the semi-surface of the sulfur spring, housed within the whitewashed octagonal barn. Heat, deliciously soft and slightly roiling, the water embraces and caresses my body and soul. It is as if my bones themselves open up to let flow in the healing sulfurous cure. I float in the delightful silence. I sleep perchance to dream, and dream of a world at peace, of an America at peace, unhampered by lost limbs, minds, and crippling fratricide, murder most foul. The essence of time comes back to me. February 17, year of our Lord, 1863, half moon, Triangular dots of Canada geese south by southwest, 30 degrees. Good God Almighty, soaking in these here sulfur springs is the bee's knees. I understand, I easily understand why Mr. Jefferson dipped his 75-year-old bones in these waters three times a day to find rest from his ills. Fellow Wooklinites, as I lay and lounge on the susurrous surface of this sulfur spring, It occurs to me to leave it all in this eight-sided barn, my past, my future, my present, and emerge a new man with a new vision of how peaceful life on this planet can be. Oh yes, I have a job to do and I'll do it well, but shall I let those men go? Shall I track them? but not suck their souls up into the bottomless bowels of my deluxe Electrolux S80? Shall I locate them, then file a report to the order in absentia? Then shall I return to kneel at the altar of this octagonal church indefinitely? What think you? For once in my life, should I turn my back on the orders of the order and hang up my deluxe Electrolux S80? forever? Call me Ethelred the unready, but should I make my destiny my destination? Shall I propose to the angelic masseuse, and if she'll have me, shall I do my best not to implode with an overwhelming sense of joy and rapture bordering on nirvana? Furthermore, I'd like to take this time to extend my gratitude to James Matthew Jed Seat, elder brother of our author, Arthur, who put my conscience to the test when he roughly accosted me on the crushed stone path 
from massage room to spring and spat. Hey, Mr. J, why not leave my little brother and his two pals be? Can't you see they're just trying to be happy? Why not track down your own bliss? Seems to me you're pretty happy with this. The noble savage was correct, of course. So here I shall... So here shall I one more day stay. In the Jefferson Pools, ad infinitum. Might one of you deliver this note? Best wishes, Grand Poobah. One bit of advice, go easy on the fireballs. When you pitch a louie, you tend to overthrow. And to you three wandering deserters, don't be surprised to spy my spirit perched behind a sycamore as you delve into the sacred rites of marriage, bodhisattva style, as you trip the light fantastic at the Shadow Brook dance hall, and even as one of you ascends to take his place at the right hand of the Father, I shall be there. Dear reader, tis the last you'll hear from me. I have used up all of my words. Finally, I, Mr. Jedediah Jones, bid you adieu. I've read these books you see around you Put the paint on the wall More than anything, I realize that it's time for me to go. I want to see some music and feel the breezes by the lake. I want to practice loving And celebrate it every day I want to climb a mountain With all the crazies in the park I want my child beside me And a whisper in the dark I Show. 
up naked Like all the women do These books you see around you Put the paint upon the walls But more than anything I realize That it's time For me That was the Mick Mahoney Band singing The Innocent and True. Thank you, Mortimer. Well, that concludes another episode of Booksmart. Remember, people, it's about life, death, and the in-between. Until next time, peace.